Black Women to Watch is on a mission to tackle the underrepresentation of Black women. We seek to celebrate those who are power rising through the ranks by amplifying their voices and their stories. These women run companies, transform industries, and are the very backbone of our democracy. Amazing in their own right, they are distinguished leaders, and through their journey, we uncover the keys of inspiration. As Vice President Kamala Harris said, Black women are often too often overlooked. And at Black Women to Watch, we're changing the game. Hey, I'm Lauren, and welcome to Black Women to Watch. Now, as far back as I can remember, my life has been defined by spaces of community. From Girl Scouts to sorority life and everything in between, I have found inspiration from strong women who are breaking barriers. Over the last few years, I've become increasingly frustrated by the lack of inspirational content highlighting Black women throughout industries. Time and time again, we see platforms highlight the same incredible and inspirational Black women at the peak of their careers. And while that's great, what about the next generation of Black female leaders? They run companies, transform industries. They're the very backbone of our democracy. I believe that when we uplift Black women, we offer a seat at the table and invite each other to take up space. The visibility of Black women deserves to be magnified. And with this podcast, I'm taking that into my own hands. Today's episode features Ryan Richardson, and I can't even begin to explain all the things she does. Born and raised in the DMV area, Ryan's life is an example of an unlikely pairing of pageantry and tech. She's a champion for marginalized people and has a proven track record for driving for more equitable spaces in big tech. In 2018, Ryan earned the title of the 50th anniversary Miss Black America, the oldest pageant organization in the United States for women of color. Let's check out her story. Ryan, welcome to Black Women to Watch. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's such an honor to have you on the show today to share your story. And as some people may know, but others may not, you and I have been friends for many years. We work together at Uber and we've stayed in touch over the years. So it is so exciting to have you here today. I'm so excited for you and the journey that you are on and having created this. Um, of course, we work together and beyond us being friends, I've always thought so highly uh, of you as a professional and as a thought leader. So I'm not surprised that you've taken on this endeavor and I'm just really looking forward to watching this journey. I'm, I'm sure that what you're going to create here will be really transformational for a lot of people. Oh, that means so much to me. Thank you so much. And we're going to just keep this love fest going because tech founder, inclusion leader, Miss Black America, political analyst. That's a lot of amazing titles. And it's so exciting to be able to share your story. And so I want to start, as we always do here at Black Women to Watch, with your six-word memoir. Now, these six words describe your life and give us a glimpse of who you really are. It can be funny, reflective, really anything. And so without further ado, what is your six-word memoir? My six-word memoir. Is the rosé sparkling or flat? Yeah, no, that, that is so me. I literally asked this question recently, short story. So I, I went to this thing called Rally and Rosé. It's basically drunk tennis. It's a great little activity to get out of the house um, after you've been stuck in quarantine for, I don't know, 
47 months at this point. And of course they serve rosé. And I ask the very logical question when I arrive and I'm offered rosé or White Claw, is the rosé sparkling or flat? And the looks of horror that I received from other people there, from this staff, this is a critical question. It's an important question. And I realized in this moment that there are some people who hear rosé and just say yes, and others who are discerning enough to realize that just because it's rosé doesn't mean it's good. One has to determine if it's sparkling or flat, if it suits their lifestyle, their needs, their requirements. And that was the moment when I realized perhaps I'm not normal because I am of the class, the ilk, who has to know if the rosé is sparkling or flat. You know what? That is the most profound thing I think I've heard in a very long time. I'm totally adopting that. Anytime I go anywhere, is the rosé sparkling or flat? That's the first question that I will ask. So thank you. I, I want to continue just with understanding a little bit more who you are. And I think it's always a great place to start by understanding who you were as a child. And in particular, when you were thinking about who you wanted to be when you grow up, were there women in particular that you looked up to that made you think, I want to be like her. What's interesting. So I, I certainly had female role models and they were largely the women in my family. And I have talked at nauseum over the years about my mom and grandmom and their stories and how there are these benchmarks or uh, mile markers almost of just like black American history that are woven into their lives and how hearing their narratives from my grandmother who was the child of sharecroppers who somehow saved up just enough money to buy that plot of land that the, the family had been working for generations, either as sharecroppers or as uh, enslaved people before that in, in Southampton County, Virginia, to my mother, who, you know, one of her earliest kind of formative thoughts was remembering the day that Dr. King was killed in 1968 and, and the response that her mother had and the um, reverberations of that event through her community. Now in my role with Miss Black America, my life is an extension of their legacy and their lived experiences and their successes and triumphs, hopefully a reflection of our Black future. So those women certainly inspired me and inspire my worldview and my understanding of kind of purpose in life. But with regard to who I wanted to be when I grew up, oddly enough, I, I think most of my role models in that sense were male. And I think it speaks to who I was as, as a child, who like young Ryan was. And I was like such a tomboy. Like I grew up with, you know, I have my mom, my dad, and my little brother, but because my mom and dad worked like different hours, I spent a lot of time with just my dad and my brother. And in retrospect, I realized my dad totally gave up on this idea that he had a daughter and a son. He's like, hell, I'm just going to raise two boys because it's easier. Uh, <laughs> so, so much of um, my experience as a kid was doing boy stuff is said with air quotes and playing football with the boys and listening to sports talk radio with my dad in the car and just doing like little man things. And I think as a result, like the role models that I found were men who generally inspire or who inspired the same, that my generation of little boys and they shaped my understanding of what I could be in the world. And that's perhaps not a bad thing. So how does one who spends a lot of time with her brother and her dad, how do you find your way into pageantry? 
Because at my core, what I have always been is incredibly obsessively competitive. And I had a cousin who effectively dared me to do a pageant. She, she said I couldn't do it. These were back in the days when like the teen pageants would buy like the subscription list to all the teen magazines and they would send out like these direct mail pieces to young women all across the country to get them to sign up to their pageant for their pageants and give them some obscene amount of money and entry fee by saying, you've been selected as a finalist for the Miss Maryland Teen USA pageant because you're an exceptional teen of Maryland or whatever the verbiage was. And my little cousin got that mailer. And I remember she called to antagonize me because I was such the tomboy. And that was so core to my identity. She just had to let me know that she was one of the exceptional teenagers of Maryland. And the Miss Maryland Teen USA pageant wanted her to come and compete. And of course, she goes, of course you didn't get this in the mail. I know, Ryan, because this isn't your thing. Like you totally couldn't do a pageant. And 14, 15 year old Ryan said, say less and entered her first pageant just because my, my annoying little cousin told me that I couldn't, it wasn't my thing and I'd never be good at it. Yes. Say less, say less. And not only have you um, held so many titles, you are today Miss Black America. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? I know um, other icons such as Oprah Winfrey and Tony Braxton have been contestants in that pageant as well. But what does it mean to you to be the 50th Miss Black America? It's really cool. So I competed for Miss Black America long after I thought I had retired from pageants. I was perfectly happy to have put that part of my life behind me. I felt like I had done enough and won enough and I was really content. And I had... I'd, gleaned enough value, gathered enough value from the pageant experience. I paid for the bulk of my undergraduate education with scholarships that I earned in pageants. I had built a great network and incredible communication skills. I probably owe a lot of the career that I had built, at least up, up until that point, to relationships I built in pageants or skills that I built in pageants that I then just transferred into my professional life. So I was ready. I was fine to move on and never think about it again. But a girlfriend of mine was the outgoing Miss Black America. And she just reminded me, not so gently, she twisted my arm by saying, this is the 50th anniversary of the Miss Black America pageant coming up. Miss Black America was founded effectively as more of a protest than a pageant. At when it was first founded, there had never been a Black contestant in Miss America or Miss USA, let alone a winner. And for many years before that, there was like an explicit rule at Miss America that contestants had to be white and of the Christian faith. So there was something really profound and powerful about this protest of a pageant that was started in Atlantic City on the same night as the Miss America pageant just down the street. And the legacy of Miss Black America was such that it created not just this first big national pageant that Black women could participate in, but when it was first televised on NBC, it was really the first TV program in American history that was dedicated solely to celebrating Black women and their talent and their beauty and their intellect and their excellence. And that, of course, forced the hands of other pageants to be able to finally admit Black women and allow for generations of young Black girls to see themselves um, reflected in a Miss America or a Miss USA or a Miss Universe every now and then. 
it of course allowed me to earn all that scholarship money and go to college. So in many ways, competing for and ultimately winning Miss Black America was very much like this meta full circle kind of experience for me because if not for Miss Black, Miss Black America in 1968, I would not have had the the pageant experience, the pageant career that I did have and benefit from in so many ways. Yeah, that's incredible. And I think one of the things that you talked about is just the idea of it serving such a, a full circle moment for you because this pageant opened the door and, and created a way for people like you and for others to be able to compete in pageantry. So that's powerful and, and certainly makes me think about my HBCU experience. And when these opportunities were created for us, it really paved the way. And so that's incredible. One of the things that I know is so near and dear to you, and in fact, is what you ran your pageant career sort of thinking about was this idea of creating an equitable space in tech. And I know um, that you have worked in tech for many years at this point, and you've served as a tech executive, a founder. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about the constant work that you've been doing to advocate for tech being a more equitable space uh, for women and people of color. I know you've worked at companies spanning from early stage startups to billion dollar unicorns to Fortune 500 companies, and all the while you've been dedicated to this work. So what does that look like? And, and how are you really driving and advocating for change? My, we'll call it activism in this space, it started by accident, I think, or, or by happenstance, which is probably par for the course for so many that are invested in, in this kind of work on the equity front. But uh, I, I guess the first kind of spark of consciousness for me was really early on in my career before I was working at what we would consider like a big tech company per se, but I was working at T-Mobile and I was launching a, a brand for them that was targeted at primarily black and brown, low income urban populations. And I start as a marketer, I you're always cognizant of the messaging and the framing of your company's message in a market and, and the way that that message is received or the impact rather that that message has on um, consumers in your market. And I started to get like this icky feeling just uh, about the way in which I felt much of our, our work was a bit exploitative of these communities and the company was really extracting a lot of, that's what we'll say, extra extracting a lot of value from poor black and brown communities without actually investing uh, into them. And that made me uncomfortable, but not so much that I took any specific action or felt like I had the tools to take any action. I just knew that something didn't sit right there with me. And then I fast forward to the time that we spent working together at Uber. And of course, the work that you and I both did as founding members of what was at that point, like this grassroots diversity, employee-led diversity and inclusion task force. That was like my, my step two <laughs> into this activism in our tech space. And in this instance, I felt like I had more direction. I had more actionable items that I, I, I could contribute on. There was something tangible that I could do here in improving an organization on some level. And in that case, it was the diversity or attempt to improve the diversity of our workforce and the experience of our talent who came from diverse or underrepresented backgrounds. And with each move in my career, I think I became bolder and more focused on not just 
building the brands of the companies I worked for, but being cognizant of how those organizations played a greater role in, in impacting society and impacting the communities that are, are stakeholders and, and impacting the experience of the people who work there, of course, um, primarily focusing on underrepresented people. And I got to the point in maybe 20, late 2018, early 2019, when I realized I put this all together and I finally had a perspective that I was prepared to communicate in a really targeted manner about the responsibility of our industry to act as good, not just good corporate citizens in that very vague social corporate social responsibility sense, but good corporate citizens in actually leveraging the power of our industry, the power of technology to build fundamental change in our communities. If we can, if a technology can completely change the way America moves, works, uh, Americans eat, where we go, it can also fundamentally change the socio-political stance of, or position rather, of people in America, of people in communities. And I started to travel the country, speaking to to audiences of technologists, of founders and entrepreneurs about that responsibility to build uh, technology that matters, to build technology companies that make a positive net contribution uh, to the world rather than building these companies that simply extract value from uh, communities that have been you know, historically harmed by industry. What's interesting about your journey, and as I hear you share just the work that you're doing to drive this advocacy of making this space more equitable, is I think about you're in an industry where the odds are frankly stacked against you, right? You're at the intersectionality of being a woman, a Black woman at that, in a male, a white male dominated um, industry, and you're able to rise as an executive. You are dealing with, I would imagine, microaggressions and all of the things, bias that typically come to play in this industry. You're also a pageant queen and have competed in and won so many different pageants throughout the course of your life. And I think it's fair to say that there are stereotypes that come with pageantry. And so I'm just curious, how do you navigate this industry that really wasn't set up for you? and yet you're so successful. And you also are redefining what people think about when they think of pageant queens. So how did you do that? How did you juggle the, the different roles that you have set up to show up in the, work, in the workspace and in the work world and contribute as an executive and also challenge the way that they're thinking about inclusion and diversity and equity? How did you do all of that? Yeah. So, well, it's probably a two or three part answer to this because in all honesty, for the bulk of my career, pretty much the entire time before I won Miss Black America, I was really deliberate in creating what I call like this great wall between my professional life and between pageantry to the point that with the exception of folks who were friends, colleagues who became friends as you did, most people didn't know about the whole pageant thing. Unless you took the time to Google me. This was likely something that a lot of my colleagues never even knew about. And that was intentional because I was sensitive to the stereotypes of what it meant to be a woman who competed in the pageant, or frankly, just what it means to be a woman who 
acknowledges, invests in, and leverages beauty in any way. And that's a very layered set of considerations that I, I talked about in my TED Talk, shameless plug. <laughs> um, but for a long time, I kept it a, I, I kept it a secret because I was fearful that the stereotypes, the misconceptions, or the preconceived notions that folks may have about pageantry or air quotes, pageant girls might undermine my credibility professionally. And then I won Miss Black America and that was not possible <laughs> anymore uh, to hide because it was a thing. And it was like a, a news story. And apparently a press release went out that mentioned my job. And of course, people have Google alerts. <laughs> so when the company's name was mentioned, then everyone knew. And I was really forced to lean into accepting both identities that I had previously thought of as my lives in parallel universes and merge them together and be audacious in saying, so what? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I'm a air quotes beauty queen. I've done beauty pageants. And at that point, I was an executive leading a hundred million dollar uh, tech company. So what? Your brain can process that. Trust me, it can. So that's... That is a later kind of development for me in marrying those two identities with regard to how I have existed and moved and attempted to thrive in the tech space just as a woman and a black woman. I think a large part of that can be attributed to that my early mindset where I talked about being raised like a boy was my dad's other son and having the bulk of my role models, at least in kind of the professional sphere and the people that I identified with, frankly, were men. So I think a lot of my worldview and sense of what I could do was not necessarily hampered by the notions of what women are supposed to do. I, for as long as I could remember, I just identified with men or at least male role models. And I think I probably approached my career with the kind of, we'll say, aggressions that we oftentimes associate with male executives. Uh, does that always serve me? <laughs> no, because as we know, a lot of people don't aren't particularly fond of women who exert the same kind of assertive energy that men can, but more often than not, it served me well. I, I think so many people, to your point, really think about, particularly women of color, when they show up in the boardroom, there's all of these existing conceptions of how they will be perceived. And you often are so overwhelmed by that and really trying to combat the expectations of how you will show up that it causes you to really diminish yourself. And what I'm hearing from you is that you've really risen to the occasion and really own just how you show up with the skills that you've learned both growing up with your dad and your brother and all of the sort of male role models that played a significant role in your life, but also through the, the experiences that you've learned through pageantry and marrying the two together. It sounds like you're at this reckoning in your adulthood that has really redefined, it sounds like, how you show up. Yeah, for the most part. There have certainly been times in my career where wherein I caught myself shrinking. And I talk about this pretty openly. There was a period um, at Uber where I caught myself doing just that. And we know that the environment was special, we'll put it that way, and grueling. And it certainly had a, a profound impact on 
kind of my psyche while I was there. But when I became conscious that I was shrinking myself, I started, I adjusted and I had to be really mindful to do it. And I still do have to be really mindful to not allow the environmental or social factors around me to take me outside of the character that I want to show up as at all times. And that's not, that's certainly not easy. It is work every day, but I, I try to be intentional in leaning into being that woman. And that's as much as it's not easy. It's also, it's a risk. And I'll be frank and honest in saying the reason that I can choose to show up, to take up space, to be audacious and bold and as aggressive as one of my male counterparts is because I I'm privileged to have the luxury of if it goes poorly, I'll be okay. Having some degree of safety net. And I appreciate that for a lot of women in tech, especially Black women in tech who have come before us, right? The generations that kind of laid the groundwork for what I'm able to do now. That luxury was not afforded to them. That safety net was not necessarily there. Having the privilege of being able to fail or see things implode or go wrong because you're not a culture fit or the powers that be don't vibe with the energy that you bring to a space, albeit you're being authentic uh, to yourself, um, is a luxury that I have now because of a generation of Black women professionals and Black women leaders in tech that have paved the way and a privilege that I have because of parents who I think uh, oftentimes in their career didn't necessarily get to lean in to take up space and had to play an unfair or rigged game to ensure that I'd have a security net that allows me to be a a hell of a lot more audacious. So when we think about your future and this idea of taking up space, it sounds like this is a movement that is a part of your every day. One of the things that I love you've been quoted by saying, it's on us to give permission to the women and girls who will come behind us to be able to take up space as dynamic, complex, whole beings, not these one-dimensional tropes of what womanhood should be. So when you think about that and you think about the incredible responsibility that's on women like you and me and so many others who are um, really paving the way, we're now at this point where we've opened doors and there's an opportunity for those to come behind us. What does that responsibility look like and how should we be a part of the movement that you're building to take up space? and help others do the same. Yeah, as much as much as I just said, I have the privilege to be more audacious in my career and in my movements through the world right now because of a woman before me who paved my path. I recognize that I am doing the same. So as much as being audacious is self-serving in that it is allowed for me to build the career that I want and the life that I want, doing it is also a responsibility to hopefully lighten the load for a woman who will come behind me such that for lack of a more elegant way of putting it, if they if they dealt with Ryan, be prepared and to, to deal with whoever comes after her and will be primed to, to dealing or having kind of interactions in this professional sphere with Black women who do have the audacity to take up space and be bold and demand their worth plus tax and insist that there is no limit 
to what we can do, what we can achieve, the rooms that we can enter, and the power that, that we can yield in this industry. It, it, it is on us to be that bold and challenging right now to make it easier for the next generation. Absolutely. And, and we're seeing that in so many different spaces. And I think one in particular is the work that we're seeing happening in the political sphere. We're seeing so many you know, women and particularly women of color show up in our political system and being a part of what our future is forming and looking like. I know that you've had a significant role um, in political advocacy and specifically we're a part of the campaign and partnership with Pete Buttigieg getting ready for the election. And so I'm curious, just how did you find yourself in that space? And when you think about building for the future, our political responsibility is definitely a part of that, but being a part of a campaign is a totally different thing. And so I'm curious, how did you find yourself in this, in this space? Yeah, being a part of a campaign is something else. It was quite an eye-opening experience for me. I've always been, we'll say, what I will call politically inclined. It's, it is very much a product of where I grew up in the D.C. area for, I think, most people around the country. You kind of tune in and out of politics largely every four years or every two years around a midterm election. But for those who grow up like in the DMV, there's no turning it off. It, it is, it's the neighborhood business. It's, it is the lifeblood in many ways, government and politics of our communities and everybody. When I was growing up, you know, at, at least one of your parents worked as a part of this political machine, or our, at least our government, governmental machine. So it was just very much part of our culture. It's blue crabs, football, and politics. So I grew up on that. And it was just normal for me to always be probably more involved politically and civically than the average American is. But when I was out on tour in 2019, I spoke at the Congressional Black Caucus's annual legislative conference. Of course, we're at the start of the Democratic primary season at that point as well. So a lot of the Democratic candidates uh, for president showed up at the ALC as they should to effectively come and kiss the ring for, or kiss the ring of the Black Caucus and try to garner favor with the caucus's members. And I met uh, a number of those candidates. I met Pete Buttigieg. He was one of them who actually had his team come find me at the Phoenix Awards that, that week. And I grilled him <laughs> over a glass of wine about racial justice and issues and the South Bend Police Force. He was, of course, the then mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And I was impressed uh, by his thoughtfulness. I expected politicians' responses to hot-button questions and questions that could probably be even more uncomfortable to ask as Miss Black America is literally towering over you and grilling you about this in front of all these other Black people. But I thought, I was impressed by his responses. I was impressed by his thoughtfulness. I was uh, impressed by how candid and I thought earnest he was. And I took several months after that not pledging my support to any candidate because I ha hadn't made a decision on who I was going to vote for, let alone if I wanted to be involved in the election in a more public way beyond my, my personal voter decision. But his campaign kept following up with me and kept reaching out with me and kept looking to get in getting me involved in some capacity. And finally, towards the end of the year, I reached a place where I was really confident uh, that I had a candidate that I was invested in. His team had released what was called the Douglas Plan. It was actually the first presidential uh, campaign to put forth 
a an agenda, a specialized focus agenda specifically for Black America. And it was good. And it was thoughtful. And I thought it went far above and beyond the lip service that Black issues, again, in air quotes, are oftentimes given by politicians. It extended far beyond a conversation about like criminal justice and public assistance, which is oftentimes used, thought of synonymously as a Black agenda, which is rather offensive. Uh, and it put me in a, a place where I felt really confident that, frankly, the country needed many of the policies that were outlined in that agenda. And for that reason, I was going to be happy to support the campaign. So I ended up endorsing Pete Buttigieg and going out on the road as a surrogate, traveling the country, meeting with voters, particularly voters of color, to talk about the issues um, that were unique to them in their communities and use that to inform the campaign's movements and thoughts on, on, on policy as it pertained to those communities. Is there something that you learned about yourself during that experience? So listening to you talk about how, by happenstance, you met him at an event and you started grilling him with questions and that really sparked an opportunity to work together that was really quite serendipitous, it sounds. And I'm just curious, is there, walking out of that experience, is there something that maybe has inspired you for the future? Could we expect candidate Ryan in the future, perhaps? I felt like that was where this question was going. So here's one, I learned a lot of things about myself. I think in that experience, and especially having traveled the country more and had the kind of conversations that are born out of roundtable discussions with Black women voters and with single moms and with young people who live in communities without broadband access. I think my even my own politics evolved. Like I already, I've always thought of myself as progressive. I think I might be more progressive and left-leaning a year and a half after that exercise began for me than I was then. I also learned that being a candidate requires a certain discipline on a number of levels, but none less than, or none more than discipline, frankly, in your language and how you respond to people that I'm not sure I have, if I'm honest. Like, I, I, I think I, coming out of this, I thought I would be a fantastic policymaker, a strong policymaker, and maybe even a charismatic candidate, but I'm not sure I'm, I'd be a great politician <laughs> because, and I have all the more respect for good politicians because of this experience. I still might be quick to pop off every now and then. Apparently that is not <laughs> great for a politician. However you choose to move throughout the future, we continue to just find a lot of value in the ways that you're advocating for our community and for a better world. We'll continue to stay plugged into the work that you do. Thank you, Sess. As you can see, Ryan Richardson is the perfect example of a Black woman to watch. Her story proves that Black women, in the words of Ryan, are dynamic, complex, whole beings, not these one-dimensional tropes of what womanhood should be. For more on her story and to stay informed of everything that she's working on, visit www.ryanrichardson.com, and that's Ryan with two N's, or follow her on Instagram, at the Ryan Richardson. Be sure to also check out Subjects of Desire, a documentary which deconstructs what we understand about race and the power of beauty. And it also features our special guest, Brian Richardson. We'll see you next time.
Thanks so much for checking out another episode of Black Women to Watch. We hope that you're leaving with helpful nuggets of inspiration that can propel you even further into your journey. Now, if you like what you heard, take a moment to follow us on Instagram at Black Women to Watch and leave a comment sharing your feedback on this episode. And also share this episode with all of your friends so that they can be a part of the conversation as well. If you have an idea of a guest that we need to host on this show, be sure to visit our website at www.blackwomentowatch or hit us up in the DMs on Instagram and let us know who we need to invite on this show because we're always looking for more transformational inspiration that can help us all in our journey. Another episode is on the way next week, but until then, stay inspired. Stay inspired.